Please turn to page 1220 to our passage that uh, climax of the series on Jesus coming. Not to reference that we're near Christmas, but to his return again. The last time I stood to preach in this pulpit, I stood on the back of Sheffield Wentz having won five-nothing. And some people assured me that my vigour that day had some connection with the five-nothing victory. If you watch football results, I don't stand with that same conviction today. Uh, We lost yesterday, and I thought as I looked at my text, it could be rather appropriate. The end of all things is near. Never mind. We We live in hope. We are, as, as it were, uh, between, aren't we? It's, it's an odd Sunday. It's in between Sunday. Lovely to see so many on the in between Sunday. Uh, it's in between uh, Strictly Come Dancing and uh, the endless repeats of various programs over Christmas. I assure you, I had never watched Strictly Come Dancing, but if you did, I guess it was a rather big event. Some people thought it was. Uh, and uh, the endless repeats of Christmas, no doubt, will keep us going. At least. The repeats are worth watching, which is not normally true of much on television. But it's even more significantly between the carol service of last week and the Christmas events of the coming week. And we can sort of feel it's that odd kind of Sunday, uh, because dates change. When I was vicar here, I used to wish that we'd, we'd make Sunday always a Christmas, uh, sun, make Christmas always a Sunday, get it the right way around. Why can't we make sun, Christmases on the Sunday around December the 25th? After all, we've no idea what day Jesus was born, and it would save a lot of headaches for clergymen. The, the greatest, the greatest, the real nightmare scenario is when Christmas comes on a Saturday. That really is awful, because you've got to drum up battalions again for Sunday morning the next day, and that really is something. The only time I ever didn't have an evening service, I remember the Boxing Day Sunday, and we didn't have an evening service, I was sat at home at 6 o'clock on a Sunday, not a clue what to do with myself on a 6 o'clock on a Sunday evening. The phone rang, and the the person on the phone said, Ah, Philip, I'm having a bet here. You have a service tonight, won't you, at Fullwood? And I had to tell him that even Fullwood had bowed the knee and given up the evening service on Boxing Day. Uh, my son-in-law is going to Ethiopia after Christmas to some, visit some churches there. He tells me that their Christmas is not celebrated until January. So he'll have Christmas with us this next week, and then he'll have another Christmas in January. He also tells me that they've only just started the millennium in, in Ethiopia. They're, they're, they have a different calendar. So they've only just reached 2,000 in Ethiopia. Well, here we are on this Sunday, and one of the nice things about it being an odd Sunday is that it still is Advent. It's the end of a series we've been looking at Jesus. And while I I rejoice at the return of Advent calendars and Advent candles, they are very insufficient, because they end this week. The Advent candle stops at Christmas. The Advent calendars stop at Christmas. Well, I suppose you can't keep them going till the return of Christ. But the point of Advent is we look on to the day of the Lord's return. And we've had this series, and we conclude with this passage from Peter. And when we read that passage, look at verse 7, which is the key hinge verse. Don't you think that Peter has a memory? Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Didn't he remember that at the most crucial moment in the world's history... The day before Good Friday that he was asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying, he went to sleep at the most crucial point and with hindsight he horrified that he did and he remembers the words of Jesus. Peter, the the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. And he wants to pass the message on. He wants to pass the message on because the end is near. Please note, in spite of what I said earlier, 
jocularly, the end actually is the Greek word is telos. And it means the climax, the goal, the wonderful thing to which we're looking. So we're going towards the glory. The best is yet to be. That's when the end comes, the day of our Lord's return. Jesus said, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. Look on to that day. Everything around us talks of things winding down. For the Christian, they're gearing up. Now, of course, we should be concerned about global warming and climate change. We should care about the the planet we're leaving to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren if the Lord doesn't return. But please, I hope you believe that even if we muck up this heaven and this earth, we're not going to make any difference to the new heaven and new earth. I sometimes think people think that somehow the new earth won't be worth having because we made a mess of it. When he comes back again, it comes from above. And that's the glory to which Christians look. We don't build up Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land. We wait for his return from above. I think I've given up watching the last night of the proms. The last time I watched a couple of years ago, uh, you know how they do nowadays? They go around, they're not only singing the Albert Hall, they go to Cardiff and Glasgow and Belfast and people shiver out in the outside there to sing lustily. And they made the great mistake, the BBC, it was really quite laughable, if you remember it. They actually homed in on the crowd in Glasgow when they reached the line building Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land and they were not at all enthusiastic about their singing in Glasgow. And I don't blame them. But we, you see, wait for that end is near the glory of his return. Now, Peter would remember... How often did Jesus talk about that? How many parables did Jesus use about the day of his return? Oh, several. The bridesmaids, the talents, the pounds at least. That he would come back, the king would return. And we've got to believe, always ready for that day. It's a constant theme of the New Testament. Our little series has been reminding us. When some years ago I did a series on the parables of Jesus, I had a book to guide me by a German professor called Tilika. And Tilica was a, a, a theologian, a professor, but a great preacher. And he pointed out in one of his sermons on the, on the second coming that when he was a young greenhorn lecturer uh, and in their uh, place in, in seminary in, 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 in Germany, they always had a seminar to follow the lecture. And he used, when he was a young lecturer, to tell a student to lead the seminar afterwards. So the student uh, knew he was going to lead the seminar. And so while Tilika was lecturing, one man was listening with absolute intentness. And that was the one who was going to lead the seminar. The rest were just doodling, writing love letters, the kind of thing you do uh, when you're in lectures. And, uh, but he learned something, did Tilika. When his wisdom caught up with him, he didn't tell the student who was going to lead the seminar till after the lecture. That made a great deal of difference, you see. It might be them this time. So every student was listening intently because, well, it might be his turn. And one day, it'll be our turn. Are we ready? Now, I admit to you that 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6, is actually one of the most difficult paragraphs in the New Testament. And when I got this passage from Paul that I had to do, I was tempted just to do verses 7 to 11. But I remember that I've often said to you from this pulpit, you should never take a text out of context. Take text out of context and you're left with con. And many people have been conned by texts of the Bible taken out of their context. You can preach anything by taking texts out of context. So I must stick to my principle and briefly, but uh, sincerely, point out that verses 1 to 6 are the context 
in which he will say, the end of all things is near. Verses 1 to 6 teach us to be ready for the end time, and verses 7 to 11 teach us how to live in the end time. So, ready for the end time? Living in the end times. How can we be ready for the end time? Well, verses 1 to 6 go like this. Verse 1, in Christ. Verses 2 to 4, like Christ. Verses 5 to 6, before Christ. Okay, one by one. In Christ, verse 1. Verse 1 goes back to chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Please don't for a moment think because it's Christmas we forget the cross. In two days' time, we shall be down south with our family, but many of you will be kneeling at this communion rail, midnight Christmas Eve, and you start into Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, by doing what? Remembering his death day. And I would submit to you, there's no other man ever lived in world history whom you remember their death day, on their birthday. And so, uh, Peter reminds these Christians who are going through suffering that Christ died for sins once for all. He was put to death in the body, chapter 3, verse 18, but made alive by the Spirit. Therefore, says chapter 4, verse 1, since that's happened, we who are in Christ have done with sin. That is to say, it's our security. Our sin has been dealt with. But it's also our challenge. This letter, we know from chapter 1, was going to Christians, going through various trials, like gold in the fire. Therefore, you may have to suffer in your body unjustly like Jesus did. And in the comfort of our family Christmas, remember there are thousands of our brothers and sisters in parts of the world who are suffering in their body and some in prison because they are in Christ. Our hope, but our challenge. In Christ. Secondly, like Christ. Uh, last Monday, I was asked to speak at a men's dinner in Hull on, on the subject. This question, the subject was, would Jesus have celebrated Christmas Day? Now, there's a good question for you. They do test us preachers. Would Jesus have celebrated Christmas Day? Well, uh, this evening I'm, I'm across in Blackburn preaching in my home church where Margaret and I were married many years ago and in another church as well. So I've got two more uh, sermons for today and I should be taking up that same theme. You might just uh, spend a moment of prayer. We've got to dash across the Pennines uh, and such is the strange way diaries work. One of the churches I'm speaking at is right opposite Ewood Park, which people will know is the football ground of Blackburn Rovers. And uh, uh, what, when, who are Blackburn Rovers playing today? And at what time? Just before we have our service, they're playing Chelsea at home. So they've got an alternative. You either go and watch Chelsea at Ewood Park or hacking in St. Bartholomew's. I have a real challenge on my... Anyway, I should be preaching on that particular theme. Would Jesus have celebrated Christmas Day? Do you think he would? Now look at verses 3 and 4. Would you not say that verses 3 and 4, what pagans choose to do, is exactly what many people do this Christmas? Look at the words. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, dissipation. Doesn't that sum up what we call the office party? And we go on seeing it happen. Isn't that exactly what pagans do? And certainly our Lord Jesus would have nothing to do with that. He'd have cared for the people involved in it, but he certainly, that would not, what he wouldn't have celebrated like that. When I went to Scotland, when we went to Scotland in 1958, they didn't even 
December the 25th was not even observed by our Scottish friends. They wanted to come decorate our house on our first December the 25th in, in uh, Scotland, and we declined. Uh, uh, and I, I said to one of my friends there, who's a, who's a good Christian, uh, why do you Scots celebrate a pagan festival like New Year's Day? And said he with great wisdom, and I was put in my place, we Scots, he said, celebrate a pagan festival in a pagan way. You English celebrate a Christian festival in a pagan way. Uh, so he reckoned that they were doing rather better, which is probably true. So here is... Uh, Jesus wouldn't have celebrated this way, but it's a reminder, if we're to be like Christ, sometimes being like Christ, verse 4, means that people think we're strange, that we don't plunge into their dissipation. We don't think Christmas is self-indulgence. Okay, we'll enjoy a little bit extra, nothing wrong with that. But it's a very different world from what people think Christmas is. And the challenge comes is, are we willing to be like Christ in view of the end time? When many people think it's strange, I forbear making a comment on Mr. Blair becoming a Roman Catholic. I shall leave that for another time. But you probably, that's what happened yesterday. What I did find intriguing was there was a clip of Tony Blair speaking about why he didn't talk about his faith when he was Prime Minister. And the comment was, well, they do that in America because that's okay. But in England, people think you're a nutter if you talk about faith. That was the word he used. Now, I find that both fascinating and frightening. If that is true, so be it. Let me be thought a nutter. I'd rather somebody spoke about their faith and people think they're a nutter uh, than not speak about their faith. And Peter says, they'll think you're strange. It's intriguing. This whole passage reminds me of the Old Testament story of Lot and Sodom. Remember Lot? who tried to be a righteous man living in Sodom, but he gave in, he compromised. And when God brought him out, he tried to tell his friends what was happening. And it says they just laughed at him. You've lived with us all this time and never spoken about it? Come on, you must be joking. Be like Christ. When I was a little lad and we sang old-fashioned choruses, we sang one. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. And there are three people in the congregation who remember it. Uh, but, uh, well, that was a nice thing to sing. But you see, it was being like Jesus is not just being decent. It's sometimes being, being crucified. In Christ like Christ. Verses 5 and 6, before Christ. Everything is lived. Paul started this series, I was in the congregation when he did, reminding us that the Earl of Shaftesbury, the great social reformer, said he, could, he lived all his life consciously, every moment, thinking about the Lord's return. I can't say that. I can't say that. But I do believe that I, I know that one day I shall stand, as verse 5 says, and give an account in front of him was judging the living and the dead. I'm intrigued and challenged by the Apostle Paul, who when he stood in front of the Areopagus, that intellectual assembly in Athens, and he was an intellectual giant, when Paul stood in front of those people, he didn't make his sermon fit. He didn't want them to see that he was one of them. Oh, he started where they were, but how did he finish his message in Acts 17? He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof by raising him from the dead. Two themes that would, would have made them laugh at him. They didn't believe in resurrection. And they certainly didn't believe in a judgment day. So you see, I, if I have the courage, 
When I meet people who tell me, because I don't think there's anything after death. There's nothing there. I don't believe in a God. And I say to them, okay, tell me, what will you do if you find you were wrong? What are you going to say to God on that day? You can't touch me, God. I didn't believe you were there. Really? Since I've told you he will be there, I want you to think what you're going to say on that day. He will judge the living and the dead. Martin and I normally agree on all things ecclesiastical, but we had a little debate on the rightness or wrongness of the Archbishop of York chopping up his clerical collar. Well, now, I got into some trouble at 9.15, but I made a reference, but I will continue, my friends. I really don't mind you chopping up clerical collars at any time. Anyway, uh, what do you think about the, the, about the Archbishop? Margaret sort of thinks, well, it was a gesture because he's black and because of Uganda and he's suffered. Maybe, maybe it will make some effect. I think it's just a kind of silly old gimmick and, uh, and nobody will notice whether he's got it or not. He wears so many robes, you wouldn't notice a clerical collar on or not. Now, what you decide about that is of no great significance. And if you go home over lunch and dis- just discuss clerical collars, I have wasted my sermon. But I do want to say I agree with the Archbishop that Mugabe will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there's no doubt what the end result of that will be unless he repents and many like him you see the intriguing thing about these verses is that it talks about the fact that we're living in a time when we can ignore God if we will but one day we stand before Christ you see verse 6 if you look at it this is a very difficult verse this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead Please note the word now does not occur in the Greek. But it's been inserted, I think, in order to get across the message. It's not suggesting that when you are dead you have another chance to hear the gospel. The Bible's quite clear. Once death, then judgment. But the word now is a reminder that these who are now dead did hear the gospel. And if they've responded to the gospel, then they live in the spirit even though they are dead in the body. There are two words for life in these Two Greek words for life in this paragraph. One in verse 2 is the word bios, biology, and that's the earthly life. The word in verse 7 is zoe, which means eternal life. And the important thing is one day it matters which kind of life I have. And if I follow Christ, then in this world I may have to suffer. Because I follow Christ. But one day I stand before him fully alive. There was a gentleman I knew who did the most dramatic thing. He decided he actually would preach his own uh, funeral sermon. And he tape recorded his sermon which started, uh, Welcome to this service. You all think I'm dead but I've never been more alive than I am today. Rather nice. I've contemplated it but I think I shan't. Um, But you, you, you get the sort of idea. He was right. He's never been more alive on that day. Ready for the end time in Christ? Are you? Even if it costs you? Like Christ? Is that your ambition? Ready to be before Christ? All right, now in the light of that, there are five practical priorities. Don't worry, I shan't go on forever. We've got to dash across the Pennines after lunch, so you're quite safe. Verses 7 to 11 is a reminder that there are certain priorities, five of them, that challenge us very briefly. And they're very practical. They are reminding us of the truth of verse 7. The end is near, therefore. The end is near, therefore. 
One of the snags of coming back here to preach, as you've all heard my stories before, but here's another one which some of you, no, you haven't all, some of you heard before. There was a gentleman, in this, a vicar in this church called Mr. Peter, not many here will remember him, but he was a great preacher of the second coming. Apparently every sermon, other sermon was about the second coming. When I first came and came to Chorley Drive, um, and across the road was a lady who, when Mr. Peter had been vicar, uh, she was a new young wife. And she told me, when Mr. Peter came to call on me, to welcome me, he said, welcome to the parish, and the second sentence he uttered was, my dear if you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back today, what would you do? How many vicars today were the second sentence knocking at the door asked that? I certainly didn't, so you're, you're all right. But he did. And she said, do you know, I've often wondered, did I say the right thing? Well, I said, what did you say? I said to him, I think I'd just go on doing what I'm doing now. Was that all right? I said, well, depending on what you were doing then, whether it was all right or not. But on the assumption you were being a good wife and mother, yes. Listen, dare I put it to you? If you knew that he was coming back today, would you make no changes? I think I would. What if you would? Well, here are five priorities. One, the priority of the mind. The strange one, isn't it? Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Self-controlled is sober. Very interesting word. The world thinks that soberness is dull, boring, miserable, and that Jesus has taken all the joy out of life. The psalm we read said, Blessed, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. We want to demonstrate this kind of life is good, but it depends upon being clear-minded. Well, you're going to start a series in the new year from Romans 12, which begins by a reminder that we need to be changed in the renewal of our mind. That's where it all begins. And uh, if, you, if you glance back to one, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 13, you get the same phrase. Therefore, says Peter, 1 Peter 1, 13, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. In the light of Christ's resurrection, the first thing you do is get your minds ready. Do you remember, those who remember the authorised version, do you remember the old authorised version phrase? A lovely quaint phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. There you are, odd phrase. But it comes, of course, from the Eastern world where you had uh, long robes and you hitched them up if you wanted to move around. You didn't run races with your uh, long robes on. Which reminds me that my very first time I ever went back to preach to my old university in Oxford, I had to preach the university sermon. And in those days, the university sermon, you had to mount a very high pulpit at this university church, and you had to wear your robes. And I was very nervous when I went back to preach. It was a very nerve-wracking thing. And as I mounted the pulpit step, I forgot to hitch up my cassock, and I entered the pulpit flat on my face. I tripped <laughs> over my cassock. And th these undergraduates, it was packed. These undergraduates never tittered. They, they were very well behaved, so I dusted myself, got to my feet, made a joke, they roared their heads off, and I, my nervousness had gone completely. So the moral of the story is, if you're ever nervous, to hitch up your cassock, and you'll be all right. But you see, it, that's the girding up, the loins of your mind. I believe many Christians come to problems because they don't use their minds. They don't think it through, and they trip up. Listen. What did Jesus say to a man, you know the story, to a man who was a rich farmer who decided he was about to retire and he got everything he needed 
but he didn't know that he was going to face eternity. What did Jesus call him? He didn't say, you wicked sinner. No, no. Much more challenging. He said, you fool. I think that's strong language. You fool. This night, your soul is required of you. Okay, plans for 2008. Maybe you're going to retire in 2008. You'll have your cruise and this and that and the other. Fine. So long as, first of all, you're right with him and ready for him, that day comes first. The priority of the mind. Secondly, the priority of prayer. Because we're clear-minded, says verse 7, you can pray. There's a lot in this letter about praying. In chapter 3, verse 7, it talks about husband and wife giving time to pray with each other. It's a priority. And if I may say, everything else will follow from that. If you want to make a resolution for 2008, what about more prayer, personally, family, church-wise? Thirdly, the priority of love, the priority of the mind, the priority of prayer, the priority of love. Above all these, says Peter, love each other deeply. Now, love is a, a word you can easily sort of be very vague. Paul, in his letters, talks about putting on love as the upper garment, Colossians chapter 3, where all these things, but above everything, put love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. But to get the message across, Peter has an adverb and two practical things. The adverb, love each other deeply. Please note that adverb. It comes also in chapter 1, verse 22. Love deeply. The Greek word means stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched till breaking point. When you were at school, did you as a little lad and girl, only, only lads do this, get a piece of elastic and flick it at the, at the neck of the boy in front. And he didn't dare shout because he was in the middle of the class. And you used to pull this, and perhaps you didn't. Perhaps only I did that kind of thing. I did. It was great fun. But you stretch your elastic, it's almost about to break. It's a word that's used about uh, a horse that's in, in full gallop. That's in, in, in secular Greek. Do you see what it's saying? Love each other till it hurts. It's easy to express love. Most of us go to families this week and we have a good relation, I hope, with our families and we can enjoy it. Not everybody does. So I have another tube a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and I was going to London to speak at a carol service. I sat opposite two young ladies who were talking about going back to their families and clearly it was just a, a bit of a bore a bit of a bind. Let's get it over with as soon as possible. I may be, he may be here in church today. If he is, he will forgive me. A student the other day I met at the door and said, are you going home for Christmas? No, I'll be here at Christmas. Uh, family at Christmas? Not with my family. So you see, it isn't always. But for most of us, it's a time of love. And the challenge is to love each other deeply till it costs. And then two illustrations. Hospitality, uh, first, sorry, Love covers a multitude of sins. Forgiveness and then hospitality. Uh, don't get that love covers a multitude of sins wrong. It doesn't mean that if you love other people, it doesn't matter how you live for the rest. That'll be okay. Of course not. Only Christ can cover our sins. Psalm 32 we read, Blessed is he whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ, by what he did on the cross. Nor does it suggest that if we love somebody, that covers their sins. What it really means is that since forgiveness through the blood of Christ has covered sin, how much more 
should we learn to forgive. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Please never say I forgive but I can't forget. We probably mean I won't. And we need to demonstrate by the grace of God what a priority for a new year. But also hospitality, that hospitality without grumbling. It's a very important part of Christian living, practical hospitality. Love, you see, is the language of heaven. It's a priority. Fourthly, the priority of service, verses 10 to 11a. Peter then goes on to talk about gifts. We all have different gifts and we should use our gifts, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. There is that word in verse 10, administering God's grace. And the word administering is the word stewardship. When I first came here as a vicar, this was all the rage, Christian stewardship, normally about money. But it's really about using whatever gifts God has given, money, talents, time, and using them, whatever gifts. And he points out there are two. Either you've got a gift of speaking, but if you do, verse 11, use the very words of God, a challenge to those who preach, those who teach children, those who lead the young people, those who lead home groups, and indeed those who give our testimony. The task is to speak the very words of God. And if I stick to what the Bible says, I'm teaching the very words of God. All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. I, I, I did hear a comment made, somebody protesting, well, of course, that's the Old Testament scripture. Well, of course it was. But therefore it doesn't apply to the New Testament. Wait a minute, of course it does. 2 Peter 3.16, 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says about Paul that he sometimes says hard things and people try to distort them as they do the other scriptures. Peter believed Paul was the word of God and Paul believed Peter was the word of God. So, scripture are the very words of God and if I've got that gift then I'm under that authority. I am constantly... But for others, it's not so much the words, it's practical service. You see that? In verse 11, B, if anyone serves, he should do that with the strength God provides. For some people speaking, for others serving, the two can go together. The people who were called to be deacons in Acts 6 were Philip and Stephen and five others. And Philip and Stephen were called to great ministry with the word as well. But service is practical, caring. And Jesus demonstrated it supremely, and we often think of it, by washing the disciples' feet. Have you ever thought, how often did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Well, we don't know, but it's only mentioned once, and I think it only happened once. It wasn't a thing he always was doing. But he did it on that day in John 13, because he knew, said John 13, 1, that his hour had come. He knew what time it was, and he was going to the cross, and he wanted to demonstrate the self-giving that Christmas speaks about, that Calvary speaks about, and he took the job of the slave. Have you ever thought, if you know the story, why was it that Peter got so angry? Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet ever, ever, ever. Why did he feel like that? Because Peter would have walked into that upper room and he'd seen the bowl and the towel and the water. And he thought to himself, that's not my job. I'm not the servant. I'm as good as the rest. After all, they've been arguing on the way who was the greatest. And they'd rather sit with mucky feet than actually do the job of a, a skivvy. 
And Jesus, Peter's hero, son of God, took the towel. What a challenge to Peter. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? One last priority. I said five. And there are five. The mind, prayer, love, service. Finally, the priority of God's glory. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, whom be the, him be the glory and power forever and ever. How easily we want the glory for ourselves. Some of you know that I was for a long time linked with the Keswick Convention. One of the most embarrassing moments, and I remember it vividly, was being taken on one side by a fellow clergyman who, 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 who was sweating in tough areas and he'd come to hear the Word of God preached at Keswick and he was very upset. And I actually understood why he was upset what he heard on that particular day. And he came to me after and said, Philip, you're the chairman of this lot. I'm going to pour out my mind to you. He said, I've just heard an hour and the framework of the sermon was the letter to whatever, I won't mention because some of you may know, was a letter to. But the picture in the frame was a preacher. I learned very little about the Bible. I learned a lot about the preacher. I didn't come to discover preachers. I came for the word of God. And it challenged me. Of course every preacher, including this one in the pulpit now, uses illustration about himself. I hope to God I never give the impression that I'm in the frame. I'm here to point you to Jesus who's in the frame. He's the picture. Glory to him. How easily we want glory for ourselves. You're going to do a series in the new year from Ezekiel where the glory departed from the very house of God. Solemn reminder that it can happen. But the challenge and joy of where we are now is we're living in glory land. Christmas Day will dawn very soon now. Glory to God in the highest. When he comes again, the great Advent theme, he will come with power and great glory. Last Monday, Laura Revit, dear Laura, used to sit just there. Year after year after year, we had our Thanksgiving service on Monday. And she'd chosen the passage. It was all chosen by Laura, her service. And she'd chosen the passage in Romans 8. I am convinced that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And now Laura's enjoying that glory. The Bible says in 1 John 3, that not only shall we see his glory, but we'll share it. We shall be like him. We shall see him. As he is. My um, one job at Christmas is Mark does all the hard work at Christmas, but my one job is to write the Christmas cards. My writing is so, in, so illegible uh, that she, she probably thinks that most people have no idea where my cards have come from. So if you've got a card which you don't know where it's come from, it's from us. So that's maybe, if you can't read the writing, it's ours. But uh, I, when I go through the list of Christmas cards, very much so this year, the number of Mr. and Mrs. had to be changed. No Mr. now. No Mrs. now. Just a reminder, as years go by, we know not the day or the hour. Soon after I, I retired, I went to speak at a student gathering. Uh, and uh, one of these student gatherings where at the end of the talk, they asked the students if they would they like to say anything they'd learned from this, the talk. 
it's a terribly embarrassing moment for several minutes and nobody's up to learn anything at all. And then somebody boldly gets up and says the exact opposite of what you thought you'd said and they've learned and you really go through it. Well, then it, then it came to the moment when they said, would you like to pray for Philip? But well, I'm over often, much prayer as possible. And uh, one lad got up and prayed. He said, I want to give Philip a text from Scripture and pray for him. My text is that you will bear fruit in old age. I was a bit gnarled to the time, but anyway, there we are. It's a good one. And I want to bear fruit in old age. I've had more than one person say to me that they think I'm mad dashing over the Pennines to go and preach twice again today. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I am. But I think I want to say that we only have one life. And it will soon be past. Only what's done for God will last. So, you, you living in the light of that day, will these be your priorities for as long as God gives you grace and opportunity? I'm going to pray and I'm going to introduce the last song. Let's pray. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, that through this series we've been reminded of the return of Jesus one day. And as we celebrate the wonder and joy of his first coming to be our saviour, help us to be ready to meet him when he comes to be our Lord and judge. And thank you for the hope we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen.